You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. So the reading today is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 34. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Thanks, Amber. Good morning, everybody. Uh, If you're saying, uh, who's that bloke up the front? Uh, My name's Lee Diprose, and I'm one of the lay pastors here at the City on the Hill West. I wonder, for those of you who've been coming along regularly, I wonder whether you've ever done a little uh, count of how many crosses there are inside All Saints building and how many crosses there are outside the building. I have done a head count or a cross count. There are seven big crosses and there are seven, uh, five crucifixes. That means there's a figure on the cross. All up, there are 22 crosses. Now, kids, you can check me out afterwards. You can go on a little cross hunt around the church and outside the church. Don't forget to look outside and don't forget to look in the aisle as well and uh, tell me whether I'm right. Now, all of those crosses are objects, sometimes are objects of superstition, and sometimes they're just ornaments. And then they are actual idols. Uh, if we were in charge of this building, if we owned this building, this wouldn't be part of the decor. We'd have different decor. So we've got all these crosses but they really don't convey to us the suffering that Jesus went through. And they really don't take us to the crux of the cross, which is what we're going to look at this morning. We're looking together that Jesus' prayer shows us the crux of the cross. That is, why the cross was what it was for the Lord Jesus. Why he died on a cross for us. But we cannot go to these crosses around inside the building or outside the building. That won't give us the answer to the crux of the cross. We need to go to the Word of God. The Word of God is where we find the answers of the crux of the cross. And what better way than to go to the prayer of the Lord Jesus himself, to see his words where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you may take us into your word this morning, not with just mere understanding, but you might take us into your word with an experience of your word. Make your word powerfully effective in our lives, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, so far as uh, Paul showed us earlier on, I'm not sure whether I have anything to say after Paul shared that magnificent story um, in the kids' talk. But we've looked at the matter of adoration, as Paul said, and the matter of confession and submission in prayer last week. And today we're looking at the matter of uh, supplication, which, as Paul said, is to ask. But I think we could say a little bit more than that as adults. We can say it is to ask specifically and in prayer to look for specific action. The Lord Jesus was taken and uh, nailed to a cross. A cross, a wooden cross, would be laid out on the ground and then the body of the victim or the body of the criminal would be laid on the on the wooden cross and then nails would be put through his wrists or hands and through his feet. And then the cross would be erected, be lifted up and plonked into a hole. Can you imagine the jolt as Jesus is up there on the cross, the jolt as the cross actually goes to the bottom of the hole and then others come and ram it tight with earth? It was a place called the skull where they crucified the Lord Jesus. It was designed to be cruel It was designed to be shameful and hurtful. I remember going up to uh, Queens uh, when I was living in Queensland years ago and uh, went along and visited the St. Peter's Lutheran College. I went to the chapel and to one side of the chapel there was this little room, little brick room, and inside was a sculpture. And the sculpture had been designed by the sculptor to actually show what Jesus went through. It showed the disfigurement in his body. It showed the strain on his face. It showed the stretching of his sinews and his muscles. It showed his silent, slumped body. I stood there and stepped back. It was repulsive, captivating, but repulsive. It was an ugly scene, but it highlighted to me of what the Lord Jesus went through when he went to the cross and died in our place. When he suffered, not just physically, but when he suffered for our sin. What we read here in Luke chapter 23 is we learn and we read that at a time of extreme provocation, excruciating pain, Jesus prayed. He cried out these words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And it's those words which really take us to the crux of the cross. So we're going to look at three things together today from this one Particular verse. Firstly, Jesus' prayerful address. Then Jesus' prayerful request. And then Jesus' answer to prayer. His prayerful address. What does he say? He says, Father, pinned to the cross, 
Jesus is faced with a blood-crazed audience of easily led, helpless, indifferent people. Blood-crazed mobs were often at crucifixions. This mob contained sneering religious rulers, mocking soldiers and insulting criminals. His immediate audience was fearful enough, but the most fearful thing for Jesus was faced with the entire, the hatred of the entire human race welling up against him. You see, Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God and that he had a special affinity with God. And so they set upon him. They weren't thinking clearly. They were just full of horrible hatred. Their hatred depicted the hatred of the entire human race against God. I think today's society is uh, still demonstrating that kind of hatred, but I think it's being demonstrated in what I call a softened way, softened hatred. I mean, when something spectacular or surprising or tragic happens, people often say today, oh my God. I was out uh, near the front footpath just the other day preparing some fishing lines and a group of girls walked up the street and they were discussing something or other. I don't know the nature of the subject, but I heard the, oh my God. Do you know that's vague, it's aloof, it's meaningless, it's indifferent, it's faithless. It's a faithless addressing of God. It's simply a copycat response. If you find yourself adopting that and picking it up from the culture, stop it. It's blasphemous. It's taking God's name in vain. You hear it in movies, you hear it on television, you hear it on trams and trains in the schoolyards and the workplace. I was brought up under blasphemous uh, conversation and comments years ago. I was a farmer and we used to have sheep and sheep have a great tendency to do the wrong thing. You want them to go one way, they'll go another. And then there's the machinery and the tractors you're working with and it's humming along beautifully and then suddenly there's a breakage. And my father would say, the great GC, Jesus Christ. I adopted that. That was part of me. Oh, that was part of my um, response. That was part of my hatred of God to actually just use God's name in vain. And when I became a Christian, that was one of the first things I knew had to go. So I asked, I made supplication to the Lord, specifically, Lord, this is such a habit of my life, I can't get rid of it. Would you please take it away? Within a fortnight, I lost the desire to swear. Well, as already stated, crucifixion was a most humiliating act. It was designed to terrify victims and onlookers. So much so that an opiate, or that is sour wine of some sort, will be given to the victims. You read about that in verse 36 of Luke 23. But it was not to assail the pain or to take pity on the sufferer, but because often the one being crucified would go demented in their fear and their pain. A person being crucified would try and resist his persecutors and uh, the terror experience would often drive them to manic states. The two thieves crucified with the Lord Jesus both received an opiate, sour wine, but Jesus didn't. Why 
didn't Jesus receive sour wine? Well, because he was being crucified in our place and he needed all his sensibilities to undergo our evil. He was faced not just with physical suffering, but with a deeper suffering connected with a sin, our sin, and with the wrath of God against our sin. And there he is, and he prays. And his prayer is stunning. He fearlessly says, Father, and his prayer indicates, and his address in his prayer indicates that he has a deep endearment to his father arising from a rich relationship. He shows a wonderful dependence at that moment and a wonderful confidence in his heavenly father and a wonderful and intimate knowledge of who his father is. It was a prayer from the son to the father where he appreciated the immediacy of the father's presence where he appreciated the immediacy of the Father's authority, of him being in charge, and his usage of this word Father at this moment. It's like Jesus saying, Father, it's okay. I know it's okay because you are here. You are right, right with me in this terror-stricken moment. You are right here in, and you're accessible in the direst circumstance. It's okay. And if you go over to Luke chapter, to Mark chapter 9 and verses 33 and 34, you see how all this opposition was prophesied against the Lord Jesus, but then he was to die and after three days, what? Rise to life. So in this one word address that he says to his father, Father, he's actually Rightly understanding the Father is with him and is about the Father's plan and is about the Father's purposes at that moment. Do you know this address, rightly understood, is the kind of the address that the universe is all about. Deep down in our lives, in the lives of every human being, there must be some memory, some intuitive understanding that life is about knowing God as our Father, that we were created to know God, but to know him as our Father. And it took the actual Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, to actually come and show us that need. It took him to come and show us what sonship is really about and what fatherhood is really about and to show us our need to know God as our Father. So right through his ministry, right through his whole life, Jesus featured his sonly relationship, but supremely and magnificently here on the cross. Father? You see, Jesus had to actually spell out in the only terms that we really understand. You see, we understand the terms of, 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 of a child crying out to their parent, or a son crying out to his father. And Jesus' address showed how much he appreciated his father, how he valued, how he adored his father. But just notice this. This address is at such a time of crucifixion. He's praying this way. It is a magnificent address. It's the starting point, as Luke pointed out to us when we started this series on prayer, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And how did he start off? Our Father, who art in heaven, we are to adore the Father. 
And here's Jesus praying, featuring just that, showing how much he appreciated and valued his father. But isn't it um, wonderful when we come to know the Lord Jesus and we come to know the Father through Christ and our lives are changed and uh, we are transformed and we made a new creature in Christ, one of the things that happen is we, we discover what it is to talk to God as our Father. The spirit of sonship is given to us and therefore we say when we pray, Father, dear Father, Oh, dear Father. And here's the true Son showing that. Last week I had the occasion to duck out of Coy's sermon. should never walk out in the preacher. Uh, unless you've got a legitimate reason. But I went out through the crèche and there were bodies. There's a lot of bodies there today, but there were bodies everywhere. There were little babies uh, Little boys, little girls and little infants, little toddlers and parents lying all over the floor and toys all over the floor. And I thought, what a family classroom this is. As young parents and as grandparents even, we have uh, occasion to actually teach our children. We have responsibility to teach our children and, and we need to teach them to pray. And it's a good thing to actually teach our children to pray. Come, Lord Jesus... But it's an even better thing to teach our children to pray, Father, dear Father, or oh, Heavenly Father. So we have a wonderful opportunity in life, don't we, to actually pray and teach so that we address the Lord majestically and magnificently. But then there's the request, Jesus' prayer for request, Father, forgive them. The thing you have to admire here is the mindfulness of Christ that he's not thinking about himself, he's thinking about other people. He's caring for others when he says, forgive them. He's concerned for others, he's taken interest in others. Uh, over in Philippians 2, it's called the mind of Christ. But that same mind of Christ that Jesus demonstrated up on the cross is what we're to practice in life ourselves. And there was Jesus, he was being obedient to his father and being obedient to the point of death. And he had this mindset, he had this mindset while he was under attack. He could see all the surrounding people that they were in dire need of relationship with his father. He could see that they needed to know God's saving grace. He could see that they needed to be forgiven. They needed forgiveness for their rebellion, for their independence, for their hatred, for their unbelief, for their hypocrisy, and for their separation from an all-holy Heavenly Father. And the world is just that way today. We are going to see people in the course of the week that are in great need of knowing God as their Father and knowing as the Father of love and of grace. And Jesus pointed out in the Gospels what forgiveness really is. And one of the things that's interesting through the Gospels is that Jesus pointed out that forgiveness comes from the Father. Father, he says, forgive us our sins in the Lord's Prayer. Here he's saying, Father, forgive them. Over in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul writes, In the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 
And then further on in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness to us comes from the Father through the Son. Now, every one of us has a deep need of forgiveness. And the beautiful thing is that this is what the Father was arranging for us to become possible, to make possible, to make real. By virtue of his son being on the cross and dying in our place and suffering the penalty and the pollution of our sin, he made forgiveness possible for us. In his love, God gave up his son to make atonement and righteously secure forgiveness. And Jesus is confident of that. That's why he prays so confidently to Father, forgive them saying, you are the forgiver, Father, the great forgiver. There's a wonderful release and a wonderful relief that can be known through forgiveness. Have you experienced that? Where your conscience, suddenly you realise, my conscience is clear now. The Lord doesn't hold sin against me anymore because Jesus suffered and taken the penalty and pollution and power of sin to himself. You know, down through history, this word of Jesus, Father, forgive them, hasn't always gone down well. It's been like a sword to many a human heart. People don't always go looking for forgiveness because they don't think they need forgiveness. How many times do hear people saying, I'm good, I'm good, thank you. I walked into the principal's office years ago at Bible college and he said, how are you? I said, I'm good, thank you. He says, there's nothing good but God alone. Point made. People don't always go looking for forgiveness. What they go looking for more is the matter of justice. When people have wronged them and they want to feel owed or they feel obligated, they feel entitled, people go looking for justice, for wrongs done against them. Jesus' prayer is for the forgiveness of those who were putting him to death, for Jewish leaders, Roman politicians, soldiers and bystanders. And Jesus knew that the only hope for these people was to come to know the Father's forgiveness. Now, the application of all of this is the outflow of forgiveness. Forgiveness should flow on into the community. It should be shown to husbands and wives and parents and brothers and sisters and children and friends and neighbours and, of course, to our enemies as well. But I've often heard people say, oh, I can forgive, but I can't forget. I think that shows a distinct lacking in understanding forgiveness and certainly of God's forgiveness. To judge people, to drag up others' past mistakes, to load people up with their failures, to hold another's sins in your memory is out of step with God's forgiveness. What does the Bible say about God's forgiveness? That he remembers our sins no more that he blots things out, that he removes. So what we need to do is we need to start with appreciating God's forgiveness in order to forgive. We need to know and have experienced his forgiveness. It's interesting in Hebrews it says that none of you should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Our past principal, Jeffrey Bingham, in his book Freely Flows Forgiveness says, our sins need to be unmasked. Otherwise, our forgiveness will be made minimal. 
Recognition of our sins makes forgiveness maximal. Too many believers hide their sins from themselves. To be forgiven is to forgive. What do you have to forgive today? Where do you need to show forgiveness that you haven't? If God's forgiven you, then the outflow of that forgiveness should go freely to others. And then the third thing we wanted to see from this passage this morning is Jesus' answer to prayer in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before I take you to the answer to prayer, because there was one here who actually knew what to do and got on and did it. But for everybody else surrounding the cross, they really didn't know what they were doing. They knew they were crucifying Jesus. I mean, you don't hammer in nails without knowing what you're doing, do you? You don't yell out, crucify him, crucify him, unless you understand what you're saying. What they didn't understand was that the one on the cross was the only man in all of history who understood the nature of sin. For he was the only man in all of history who understand that, uh, who had never sinned, I should say. Sin is an invasion of the true human spirit. It dehumanizes and deprives us from our true creational being. Both Jesus and the Father knew that. It's long been said to err as human, to forgive as divine. Good old Dr. Google says it is natural for people to make mistakes and it is important to forgive people when they do. I say to Google, that's not right. Second part is right. To forgive is divine, that's God's, God's business. But to err is human. No, God hasn't created us to be errorites. He hasn't created us to love sin or to live unholy lives. He's created us to live a holy life, the likeness of our Father. I remember a Sunday school class years ago and the teacher said, what happened to, um, what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned? Hands went up and he pointed out one little boy and said, yes, Johnny? Ah, all the sparkle went out of them. It was the loss of glory that they suffered. So we are in great need of actually understanding what Jesus has come to do. He's come to actually restore our humanity. Paul said later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, had the rulers known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't understand that here on the man on the cross was the man that had never sinned. So... They didn't know Christ, and Christ knew that they didn't know. And what is, what is more, he understood the devilish nature of the deceit of sin. But no one in all of history has really known the nature and true extent of sin, every one sin, let alone the whole mass of sin, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ knows everything about sin. It's why in extreme love he prays to his Father, prays for forgiveness, prays 
for those who don't know what they're about. He seeks people's forgiveness from the bondage to sin, from the bondage of having an unforgiving heart, a guilt-laden conscience, and a stubborn, resistant will. Do you know, we'll only really come alive as humans and we'll only really thrive as humans when we come to experience and to know God's forgiveness. And it happened. It happened while Jesus was on the cross. Jesus prayed. He prayed in supplication, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And it resulted in an amazing miracle. Both thieves crucified alongside Jesus lashed out at Jesus. Both screamed in agony. But then a miracle happened. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. And all of the people looked up at him and must have been astonished. Is he for real? What is this? Is this an act? But then one criminal changed. He stopped screaming, stopped berating, stopped castigating Jesus, and he suddenly fell silent. And then he began to speak well of Jesus. He addressed his fellow criminal in the most amazing terms. He said, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then in verse 41, we are suffering justly for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Such words from a man under execution are truly remarkable, but more remarkable because moments before he was giving Jesus a tongue lashing. He came into the know of what he deserved for his sin and he came into the know of what Jesus was doing about it. It was a remarkable turnaround. What caused the change? What made him say what he did? How did he know? How did this amazing miracle take place? The answer is in the utterance of Jesus in his prayer of supplication. Something in that utterance arrested the thief in his bitterness and completely transformed his mind. What was it? It was surely the cry, Father. It's interesting as you go on and look at the other sayings of Jesus while he was up on the cross and what the cross was all about. You see... It was all about fatherhood. It was more about fatherhood than it was about sonship. What we know is that the one cry in the world that is recognisable is the cry of a child to his parent. The cry of Jesus was the cry of the son to his father and the thief's change showed he had listened to Jesus' prayer. Do you know sometimes it only takes a single glimpse to actually see something? to know something for sure. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, he calls it the gospel blink. And it's interesting as you go through the gospel of Luke, there are lots of gospel blinks. Take, um, take the shepherds who went to the manger in a town called Bethlehem and they had a gospel blink moment. They saw that here was the saviour that was born. 
Take the old man Simeon who was waiting in the temple and walks the child to be dedicated and suddenly he sees that Jesus is the light of the world. Take Peter, says, who is this Christ? And Peter cries out his, his son, Christ is the son of the living God. Take Zacchaeus, he almost falls out of a tree because salvation is going to come from his house. This is gospel blink moments, moments of revelation. When you see Jesus for who he is and for what he's about and what he's doing. So listening to Jesus' prayer, he was a new dawning that came to this thief, a new understanding of fatherhood and sonship. Now doubtless the thief's criminal record was connected way back with a failure somewhere in regard to his own human fatherhood and his own sonship. Somewhere along the way he'd been a bad son. As a young uh, man um, who was converted and then was a Christian and even went into the Christian ministry, I always thought I had a bad father. I had a hang-up about calling God my father because of the way my own father treated me. And then I had a gospel blink moment. And I realised that I'd been a bad son. who needed forgiveness. It wasn't just my father who needed forgiveness. I needed forgiveness myself. For years I was complying on the outside but standing up on the inside. You see, it's easy to actually show respect and obedience to somebody like your father on the outside, but then to have a hating heart inside. And I cried out and asked God to forgive me. And he did. And I saw his forgiveness. I saw his forgiveness as one of his saved children. And it was so liberating and free. And I forgave my dad. This thief discovered that God was his father. And he discovered that the father is staggeringly merciful. But he has a heart for unbelievers. He has a heart for you. Wherever you are in your life at the moment. And then Jesus said to the thief, today you will be where? With me? In paradise. It linked up exactly with what Jesus said back in John chapter 6 and verse 37. The one who comes to me will certainly not be cast out. It was the 11th hour when the thief came to Jesus and believed. And the deciding factor was not the set of years of sinning or a particular kind of sin. I mean, God knows all about that. He knows all about us. He knows when we've crossed the line. He knows when we've failed to hit the mark in life. But here is a call now that comes to this man to make haste and to be reconciled to God, and he was. But it's also not just a call to come to God and to be reconciled with him. It's a call to be vigilant ourselves against any willful and protracted sinning on our parts. What happened to the thief reminds us of Jesus' words following his raising Lazarus from the dead. I'm not sure whether you've ever spotted it, but in John chapter 11, verses 41 and 42, Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me. And John Calvin says, 
The way Jesus prayed was the cause why many of the people afterwards drank by faith the blood which they had shed. The world did its worst in crucifying Jesus, the one whom the world was made by and come into being by, because the world didn't want to know him. They didn't want him. He was not wanted. So they plotted and planned against him. And now at the cross, their vile desires and attentions were all achieved. But then the fantastic thing was while all that was going on and while pinned to the cross, Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't revile. He didn't resist against his enemies. What did he do? He prayed. He prayed for them. I think his words show extreme love. He prayed to his Father who is love, seeking the forgiveness of the human race out of an understanding that human beings are lost in sin and they need to have their conscience cleansed and their heart made pure. As you reflect upon these words of Jesus, on Jesus' prayer this morning, at the conclusion of our series on prayer, don't just see forgiveness as a possibility. Know it as a personal reality. Value it. Appreciate it. Read up on it. Delve into it and may the forgiveness of God, the great and enormous and expansive forgiveness of God just come home to your heart and life afresh. So much so that you want to show it. You readily show it to others. The crux of the cross is that Jesus died in atoning death so forgiveness can be known and shown to others. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all that has um, been said over this prayer series. Thank you for the way you've spoken to us. Thank you for the way you've underlined the importance of prayer. But thank you, Father, for the way you've underlined it more so than in any other way through the prayer of your dear Son while up on the cross in our place. Father, may the truth of your forgiveness resonate in our lives over this whole week which lies ahead of us and the months and years of our lives to come. May we just so value knowing that you've forgiven us and cleansed us from unrighteousness. So, Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we can now come around your table and remember and celebrate and value what Jesus has done for us. We ask all this in his dear name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.